Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice the amount of renewable energy compared to the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. The United States is behind, but I think we have a huge opportunity to catch up. And we also have an opportunity to learn from the other countries that have been deploying this technology, what's worked, what hasn't, how do you think about transmission planning, how do you, you know, make sure that you're using the latest and greatest technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper. In a moment, we'll be joined by Heather Zeichel, Chief Executive Officer of the American Clean Power Association, to talk about offshore wind in the United States, which is a truly enormous and untapped opportunity to expand clean energy in this country. Although, as we'll discuss, it comes with some challenges. First, though, let me introduce my co-hosts. We have Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. And you guys, I often breeze through this introduction because we're lucky to have a lot of dedicated listeners who come back and join us every week, every two weeks now. But we also have some new listeners. So I wanted to give the mic over to you to like, you know, tell us a bit about yourselves. (laughs) So Brandon, give us a little bit of background because you wear a lot of hats and I'd love to just hear from you how you, you know, talk about it now. Yeah, Julia, you're right. I have a lot of jobs. They are in a few different buckets. So on policy, you know, I co-founded Boundary Stone Partners. Uh, we are now at 27 people and growing fast with a whole portfolio of clean energy and climate clients. Uh, on the investment side, I have a formal role with a couple of different uh, investment funds. One is NGP Energy Technology Partners. It's a growth equity fund. We've done 15 deals uh, in the last two years and very flexible capital. Some of those deals include Form Energy, Voltus, Persephone. Uh, We took ChargePoint and Bird public. So very exciting stuff. I also am a senior advisor, Align Climate Capital. We work with Aries on a climate infrastructure fund. So that's a different side of the investing. It's um, more project finance based. And then uh, Boundary Stone is uh, starting up a partnership with a new seed investment fund. So smaller checks, earlier stage. Uh, we'll have some more news on that to break later. Oh, that's cool. And then on the advocacy front, I think you all know I'm a board member of the Solutions Project and the Sunrise Movement. So very involved in environmental justice and then sit on several boards, including Clean Energy for America and a couple of the you know climate tech companies as well. Well, I'm glad that the podcast still makes your calendar because I know you're busy and you have to get to a soccer game, an LAFC game tonight. So you jammed us in, you know, before that. So you're, you're keeping well, all the Shane's balls in the air. Going. Do you want to go, Julia? You're invited. Shane's not going. I love that. That's how you guys like truly bonded, I think, was over soccer. And I get to take the extra seat. So I love it. I'd love to join you. I'm in. But first, Shane. You go? <laughs> I'll pick you up in the Tesla. 
love it. That was just Brandon's way of telling everyone he got a Tesla because I didn't even know that. And I've been to his house recently. <laughs> the cheapest Tesla the, because I don't drive anywhere. So it's the Model 3. It's not even the extended range. I love that you had the Leaf for the longest time, right? You went right from like the Leaf to and Tesla. And the Bolt. Oh, you had the Bolt, right? Yeah. You did have that for a bit. Shane, tell us a bit about your work because, you know, I always say like you are our guru and all things happening on the Hill, but take a second to talk about that because you're also super slammed and I want people to know about it. Yeah, thanks, Julia. My background is is very different than Brandon's, both, you know, on the political party I worked for and just sort of the path I took to get there. Um, right out of law school, I went and worked for Team Boehner, uh, which was the campaign, the nationwide campaign to try to turn minority leader Boehner into Speaker Boehner. Folks might recall that at that time, Pelosi was Speaker in her previous um, iteration. So that was successful. Uh, worked for a member of Congress on the Energy and Commerce Committee and really cut my teeth there. That's the first exposure I had to energy policy. And it was an exciting time to be in energy policy, you know, regardless of, of one's view on all the things that were going on at the time, because it was just nonstop energy action. Um, spent several years on the Hill, also volunteered on Romney Ryan, where I built a relationship with Paul Ryan and his team. You know, what's interesting, <clears throat> there's big news this, this week. You know, Tesla has this deal with Hertz for 100,000 cars and the valuation of Tesla hit a trillion dollars. And just want to remind people that Mitt Romney in a presidential debate with Obama called Tesla a loser. I also spent a lot of time trying to get Brandon either put in jail or removed from his job if possible, uh, as we performed oversight on, uh, on all the, uh, on all the uh, uh, Recovery Act and, and um, stimulus programs. I spent the rest of my time on Capitol Hill working for Paul. And one of the interesting things about working there was he really did run his office like a think tank. Because he really let us explore what we wanted to explore. I mean, one of the best things about working in Congress is you have access to all the resources. You can reach out to any university and talk to, you know, whatever professor authored a paper that you like. You can reach out to, to any think tank. You have the Congressional Research Service. So I really got to learn not just about the types of energy that I had traditionally worked on, which is mostly fossil energy as a Republican staffer on the Hill, but also got to learn a lot more about the clean energy transition and what, you know, some of the newer companies were doing. So since leaving Capitol Hill, I've worked exclusively on uh, clean energy, clean technology, climate change, and more recently have been really focused on the electrification of everything, um, not just you know what people think about as EVs, but also household electrification, uh, tremendous economic opportunities and emissions reductions there, energy storage, uh, both long duration energy storage, which is going to really help us use renewables more efficiently on our grid and a macro level, but also behind the meter storage. Uh, to make sure that you know we're we're uh, resilient and that uh, homes are able to electrify more easily, and a wide range of issues that honestly I never would have even thought of a long time ago. Hydrogen is becoming a huge focus because we need to decarbonize not just our transportation sector but also our industrial sector. Uh, so it's been a really really fun experience getting into this world and um, and working on this show with Brandon and Julia for years has been a really cool way to uh, to meet new people, experience these issues from from several different angles, and hopefully be part of the solution. Shane, have we succeeded in turning you blue? Oh, Shane will never turn blue, right? I've just got to get the rest of the Republicans to focus on the things that are important. And honestly, Brandon, and you know how angry I get about this, I don't understand why the argument in favor of economic efficiency has gone away. I totally understand why Republicans traditionally supported oil and gas and fossil fuels. They were easy, they were inexpensive, and they allowed people to do what they wanted to do. All those things right now are true for clean energy, and you don't have the harmful emissions that come with them. So I really wish I could get my Republican colleagues and continue to try to get my Republican colleagues to understand that all the reasons that you once liked oil and gas 
are only true now of these clean energy technologies. And in fact, oil and gas have a lot of, uh, of negative externalities that we didn't used to account for that we're now more aware of. So I won't turn blue, but hopefully I'll, I'll turn my uh, Republican Party green. It is pretty funny, given that, yeah, you worked on the Hill for Republican offices that were trying to block so much about Brandon, who was Department of Energy chief of staff and a former you know, White House staffer as well. Uh, and here you are spending time together, collaborating, actually working together now. Like, I'm still not over that. <laughs> Shane, yeah, now you spend all your time dedicated to climate and energy, clean energy policy. So before we jump to offshore wind, give us a quick rundown of what's happening in D.C. this week. There's so much in flux. And by the time this airs, things may have evolved. We're recording late on a Tuesday. But originally, uh, Nancy Pelosi was expected to do a, an infrastructure vote tomorrow, Wednesday, um, and try to have a framework, at least for the reconciliation bill, which has all kinds of climate stuff involved with it. But as you sit today, does that look feasible? What's the what's the upshot? Yeah, no. So we're recording Tuesday night for anyone who's listening. You'll probably hear this on Thursday. And the expectation was that there was going to be a vote on the House floor on the already Senate passed Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. That's what we often refer to as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. But it's actually called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And there would be a framework by the end of the week on the larger reconciliation package. I think, you know, Congress sets deadlines for themselves often, and it's never really a great idea because you should identify the policies you want to pass. You should package them and you should pass them, you know, when you have the votes to do that. In this particular case, because the president is getting on an airplane on Thursday to go to COP26 in Glasgow, I think they wanted to send him, you know, paper in hand for at least one win, which would be the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and an agreement on the second win, which is the larger uh, reconciliation package. Uh, but you know what stalled this out, and the reason it won't be voted on by the time our listeners hear this, is the same thing that stalled it out in late September. A lot of the progressives in the House of Representatives don't believe that if they pass the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Senate will then carry the votes to pass the larger reconciliation package. So I think it's sort of a trust but verify or don't trust but verify. I can't speak for them. But uh, the progressive leaders have been clear today that they, you know, even an agreement on a framework for what a reconciliation package could look like is not sufficient um, insurance for them, for lack of a better word, to feel comfortable sending the bipartisan bill to the president's desk for a signature with hopes of this passing the House and then the Senate later. This could be true for a week. This could be true for a month. This could be true all the way through this calendar year. We don't really know. But if a framework is as close as it appears to be in the Senate, as close as people are saying it is, uh, we could very well see you know votes over the next couple of weeks. But I think the president really did want to sign something before Glasgow. And unfortunately, it looks like that's not going to happen this week. So what we're hearing, just to reiterate, is a framework is not enough. It seemed as though that would have been enough to get Democrats aligned and passed and have them pass the infrastructure bill, which, you know, of course, is bipartisan. But we're hearing now that, no, it has to be at least written up text and a full vote on the actual reconciliation bill to, to proceed on infrastructure at all. Yeah, well, and to be clear, the progressives never said a framework was going to be enough. They've said for months that they will not vote on the infrastructure bill until the Senate votes on the reconciliation bill. Uh, Senator Sinema has said she won't even consider a procedural vote on the reconciliation bill until the House votes on the infrastructure bill. None of those problems have been resolved. So the infrastructure bill has obviously passed the Senate already. Uh, the reconciliation bill is getting closer to what Senator Manchin has said he wants to do as far as price tag. They're looking at narrowing some of the programs that um, you know 
some senators didn't like. They are getting closer to an agreement that everyone can wrap their head around. But what I've wondered all week, and I've wondered aloud with my colleagues throughout the early part of this week, is what has changed between September 27th and today? The fact of the matter is, Representative Jayapal, who is the leader of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, has been clear that they don't have the votes to pass the infrastructure bill until the Senate passes the reconciliation bill. And cinema has been clear on the inverse of that. And so until that gets cleared up, I don't know when there's going to be room for a vote. And I don't see an easy solution there. It's weird because we're seeing reports this week in Axios, the AP and elsewhere talking about what seems to be, you know, alignment on the climate elements of the reconciliation bill and, you know, really orienting around tax credits. It looks like things like refundability for residential tax credits are in there, which is something I've been watching closely. And there there seems to be broadly agreement, even though the clean energy payment program uh, was removed, the utility program, you know, we've got some policy solutions. But you're saying despite the progress that's been made there on the core pieces of this, it's not enough to get it done because of the political elements, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think this is this is a matter of trust. And I'm, I'm not in a good position to speak about, you know, how any of these people, individuals uh, involved feel about each other. But there is no trust uh, on the House side of the House progressives that the Senate will pass the reconciliation bill if this big piece of infrastructure legislation that the Senate's already agreed to is enacted. And that that's going to continue to be a problem until the Senate votes on a reconciliation bill. So I, I don't think there's a ton of disagreement on policy at this point, Julia, as you mentioned, there's cer- certainly some, but there's always going to be some disagreement on policy. And I do think this will get done. The, you know, I could end up looking really, really foolish by the time we release this episode, but I can almost guarantee you, in fact, I will guarantee you, there will be no vote tomorrow, despite what the speaker says. Well, Shane, you've been more right than I have as, as far as the timing goes. You know, I thought that they could get something done earlier this fall. Uh, you were always pessimistic about that. Uh, but I do think that there is such enormous pressure for the president to be able to go to the cop uh, with something. Do you think if they've got alignment on the climate provisions, you know, which is they're saying 500 billion uh, would be, you know, spent in reconciliation on this. Do you think if they get alignment on the pay fors, which seems to be the other sticking point with Senator Cinema, you know, there's a proposed tax on billionaires and whatnot. Do you think if they get those things sort of wrapped up and they have enough sort of of, of this framework, you don't think that they could move quickly, you know, in a couple days? I've seen nothing to indicate that the House will go before the Senate, um, at least right now. And just procedurally speaking, you can't vote in the Senate within the next couple of days. There's just stuff that has to happen. You know, the the parliamentarian has to look at the different provisions. It has to get written in legislative text. I mean, just from a matter of putting the bill together and preparing it for a floor vote and then the procedural votes that have to take place, you have to have a votorama where the floor is open for anyone to offer amendments. So there's just no practical way to get the reconciliation bill done prior to the president going to Glasgow. Um, But I will say, and I've said this all along, is I never understood why the president didn't lean in hard in August or September. I mean, a lot of it was, let's defer to Congress, let's let them negotiate, let's let them make a deal. The president in any party at any time is the most prominent, powerful voice in that party. And when the president steps in, and says, this is what we need to do and we need to do it now, it becomes far more difficult for, I think, individual House members or senators to put their foot down. But I think we're starting to see some of that from the White House, which is encouraging. I I was just surprised we didn't see it in August. All right. Well, we'll leave it there in our dispatch from Capitol Hill with much still in flux. And now turn to our interview with Heather Zeichel, who has had a long career battling global climate change and brings deep experience in the public and private sector. 
Most recently, she served as the executive director of the Blue Prosperity Coalition, a global network of governments, NGOs, scientists, and ocean experts working to advance sustainable blue economy goals. She previously served as the Vice President of Corporate Engagement for the Nature Conservancy. And while in government, Zeichel served as Deputy Assistant to the President for Energy and Climate Change during the Obama administration, where she coordinated the administration's energy and climate policies, as well as the groundbreaking Climate Action Plan. And prior to that, she served as Legislative Director to one of the Senate's leading environmentalists, then-Senator John Kerry, current Secretary of State. So we really could have talked to Heather about any number of climate or clean energy topics, but we really wanted to look at offshore wind in the United States, which is really this untapped area for the country and potentially a huge opportunity to increase clean energy generation as we also look to clean up the grid and electrify. So as we approach the UN Climate Summit and look at ways we can accelerate clean energy deployment and decarbonization, let's look at how the U.S. can tap into this new clean energy resource and what that process really looks like. As a final note, I'd just like to say that I recently completed judging for the Zayed Sustainability Prize. It's the United Arab Emirates pioneering global award in sustainability across five different categories, health, food, energy, water, and global high schools. Uh, It's an honor to get to help judge this prize because, you know, there are some truly remarkable startups and NGOs that apply, and I always just leave feeling so optimistic. And for those who may be looking for funding, there are hundreds of thousands of dollars available through this prize. So this may be something you want to add to your calendar as you look to seek funding for your innovative idea or the work you're doing around the world on any of those five categories I mentioned. Winners of this year's prize will be announced in January 2022. So look out for that. And now it's truly time to turn to our interview with Heather Zeichel. Here it is. Wind electricity production in the U.S. has increased dramatically over the last two decades. Last year, wind generation was more than 8% of the total utility-scale generation operating in the country. But while wind turbines have become familiar across the U.S. in both red and blue states, offshore wind production, the generation of electricity from wind turbines stationed in the actual ocean, is virtually non-existent. Even with thousands of miles of coastline, the U.S. only has around 40 megawatts of offshore wind production, predominantly coming from one utility-scale wind farm. This pales in comparison to other parts of the world, particularly in Europe, where there's more than 25 gigawatts of grid-connected offshore wind and more than 100 offshore wind farms. But the market landscape for offshore wind in the U.S. is poised to change dramatically. To discuss this new frontier in the U.S. energy transition, we're joined by Heather Zeichel, Chief Executive Officer of the American Clean Power Association, which works to champion policies that will transform the U.S. power grid to a low-cost, reliable, renewable power system. Heather, it's great to be with you today. Thanks so much for coming on. Happy to be here. Hi, old friend. (laughs) Hi, old friend, did I hear? I know, Brandon, you know Heather from your uh, Obama administration days, right? We were in the foxhole together, right, Heather? feels just like yesterday. (laughs) Do you have any FOMO or are you happy where you are? I'm actually really happy where I am. Um, I couldn't be more excited to help kind of unite all voices of clean power, wind, solar, storage, and transmission. It's never been done in Washington before, and I think we have huge opportunities in front of us. So really excited to be where I am. Yeah, and I guess for everyone's awareness, I think American Clean Power Association now encompasses what was formerly the American Wind Energy Association. Do you want to take just a moment to tell us a little bit more about the group? And I know you kicked off this week your inaugural Clean Energy Week. So just tell us a little bit more to set the scene. So the American Clean Power Association was launched in January of this year. 
Uh, and the decision was made by the board. You know, they took a step back and said, okay, what are what is the industry today? And do we have the right trade association? Because what happened over time was, you know, initially wind was, you know, one of the first movers on the clean energy scale. So they had a wind energy trade association and like a number of different technology-based trade associations. And the board sort of looked around the table and said, you know, the days of a pure play wind company are, are over. We're all kind of in wind and transmission or wind and solar or wind and solar and storage. So a decision was made that we would create the first clean energy trade association. So we represent wind, both on and offshore solar storage and, and transmission policies. So we're a whopping 10 months old. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. So we're here to talk about offshore wind. We could obviously talk about a number of different things with you, Heather. You have a wealth of experience, and I'm sure Brandon wants to tell some old war stories, which maybe we'll get into. But to set the scene on U.S. offshore wind, I mentioned there's very little production out there today. However, the potential is huge. How is this evolving from your perspective? What are some of the goals the administration's laid out and states have put in play that could transform really how this market looks in the coming years? I think for starters, what's exciting is that we are finally we're finally, finally standing up offshore wind in the United States for the first time. And your your point is exactly spot on. We've got 42 megawatts here in the United States versus um, 24,000 megawatts between Europe, the UK, and 10,000 megawatts in, in Asia. So the United States is behind, but I think we have a huge opportunity to catch up. And we also have an opportunity to learn from the other countries that have been deploying this technology. What's worked? What hasn't? How do you think about transmission planning? How do you you know, make sure that you're using the latest and greatest technology um, in constructing these facilities? So um, we're really excited about the goal that the Biden administration put forward of deploying 30,000 megawatts of offshore wind by 2030. We, As an industry, we think it's aggressive and bold, but achievable. And the other thing that is so exciting about this is, you know, what it means from a jobs perspective. Even if you looked at the 30 by 30 target from the Biden administration, that's going to jumpstart an industry and has the potential to create up to 83,000 jobs and $25 billion in annual economic output. And, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about a just and equitable transition, but a lot of our port communities are going to be supporting offshore wind. So 
the announcement we saw this week in Virginia to build the wind blade facilities. Um, that's great, but you know that 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 announcement also came with significant support for port redevelopment. So, I think. You know, kind of look across the board, there's just tremendous opportunity as we think about the offshore wind agenda. So I think you're referring to there the Siemens Gamesa offshore wind blade manufacturing plant that was just announced this week. This would be the first facility of its kind in the U.S. The company said it would invest $200 million in the plant and create 310 jobs in the process. Now, why is Siemens doing this? It's because it's partnering with Dominion Energy on a 2.6 gigawatt, $7.8 billion coastal Virginia offshore wind project. It's expected to be the largest offshore wind project when it's completed in 2026. The farm will be about 180 wind turbines across 27 miles of federal waters. And at its peak, the offshore wind farm is expected to generate enough energy to power 660,000 homes. So all told, this is a major testament, I think, to where the offshore wind industry in the U.S. is going. Exactly. Exactly. Heather, can you talk, you know, we work together on catalyzing some of these new clean energy industries in the Obama administration and creating jobs around that. Can you talk about in more detail what those jobs will look like for offshore wind? What does the supply chain look like? What maybe some of the indirect jobs associated with all of this? Yep. So we spend a lot of time talking about the job creation potential of offshore wind, and it's really fascinating to think about, right? Like even a single onshore wind turbine has over 80,000 component parts. So think about what that's like offshore and then think about what it takes to maintain them and construct them, right? We're, we're in ocean environments. We're building different kinds of equipment. So there's the, you know, sort of planning and construction phase. So jobs in, you know, steel in the ground. Um, but again, more complicated than just an, an onshore facility. But what we're seeing is there's a lot of overlap between oil and gas rig workers and the skill set needed for offshore wind, which I think is pretty exciting. And then we're building an entire supply chain. And it's not just about the turbines and blades themselves. It's also about how are you going to service them? What are the boats going to look like? You know, you you talked uh, a little bit, Julia, about how great it is to um, stand up the first project here in the U.S., but we're now seeing all these individual commitments to different parts of the supply chain. And one, I think, pretty cool thing that's happening right now is a member company of ACP, Dominion Power, is spending $500 million to build a U.S.-flagged offshore wind turbine installation vessel in Brownsville, Texas. And the steel from that project is sourced from West Virginia and Alabama. And again, like that's just one ship, but it, it shows that you've got, you know, so many states that are actually benefiting from these, these investments. And, you know, whether it's cable or, you know, when I was testifying, I was with the CEO of Orsted. Um, they just selected Kuwait Offshore Services in Texas to design and build the South Fork Project substation. Um, we've got uh, Atlantic Shores. They signed a labor agreement with six different unions for workforce training in New Jersey. So there's all these different subsea cable manufacturing plants are coming online. So it, you know, I, th I think the possibilities are, are endless, and it, it just goes to show with certainty and predictability in the permitting process, 
you've got a lot of companies that are willing to make those investments in the United States that are going to create the jobs and help us decarbonize the power sector. Yeah. So a lot of good points there to double down on one thing you mentioned, testimony. We'll link to that in our show notes. Heather recently testified before the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Energy. But you mentioned uh, boats, cables, etc. I remember this being a big hurdle for the offshore wind sector in the U.S. Even getting properly flagged boats, I think, was an issue of who can operate where and when in U.S. waters. What's happened to those types of speed bumps? Have they been overcome? Is there still more work to do? What's kind of shifted and allowed this to become possible now? Yeah, I think you're referring to Jones at Compliance. Oh my God. Yes, exactly. <laughs> who, what great podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> cannot. I'm having PTSD. <laughs> Everyone wants to know about the Jones Act. <laughs> Every good podcast has to have a shout out to the Jones Act. Um, so I would say a couple things. Um, we have just provided the first permit. So the notion that you're magically going to have this domestic supply chain like ready to rumble is that's not exactly practical. However, let me be clear, we think there's a great opportunity not just to build and construct the the turbines themselves, but look across the entire supply chain and create American-made components for the the turbine, American-made ships to service uh, the offshore wind projects. I mean, they're tremendous opportunity, but the thing that has been missing is certainty and predictability in the regulations. And This is sad to say, but um, back in 2002, when I worked for then Senator John Kerry, uh, we were trying to figure out what is the right permitting process to build an offshore wind turbine. And that was 20 years ago. And now we just finally are permitting the facilities. So it's, you know, it's, it's been a long road, but now that I think we've got the administration really focused on this 30 by 30 target We've got the Department of Interior who recognizes the importance of deploying clean energy. In fact, um, Secretary Halland was with us uh, in our member companies in Boston just a few weeks ago for our first offshore wind conference. And, you know, she very much realizes that this is on the road to Glasgow, which many uh, members of the, the cabinet find themselves Um, offshore wind is going to play a really important role in helping achieve those broader decarbonization targets in the power sector. Yeah. So you mentioned the Secretary of Interior, Deb Holland, spoke at American Clean Power's offshore wind conference. And it was at that conference that she announced plans for the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management to hold potentially up to seven new offshore wind lease sales by 2025. So this would go a long way toward meeting the administration's goal that you mentioned earlier of deploying 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. Heather, would you like to do a bonus episode on what it takes to waive the Jones Act uh, during a superstorm when the president's reelection is two weeks away? Actually, I would not, but um, I would tune in to hear you. <laughs> Brandon, what is the Jones Act for anyone who doesn't um, know? It requires that you know vessels uh, have you know, U.S. flag on them. And the incident I'm referring to, as you all remember, Superstorm Sandy uh, back in the fall of 2012, right before President Obama's reelection. And there was a lot of uh, supply chain problems with getting fuel to people when everything was down from the storm. And so the Jones Act took on a robust debate within the administration. Uh, and many of us will never forget it. 
Got it. Couple more questions. Um, so I also remember back in God, 2013, 2014, I was working for E&E News as a reporter. We were covering Cape Wind at the time, which was supposed to be one of the first offshore wind projects. And at that time, there were actually local opposition groups. There's always nimbyism. No one wants to maybe look at offshore wind turbines. I imagine that's still an issue in some places. But also there were links back to oil lobby groups who were opposing offshore wind at that time. Do you think that opposition has evolved? Are you still seeing pushback to offshore wind? Or yeah, are we in a new era where we're seeing more synergies and opportunity? In the United States, when you're citing any large infrastructure project, there's going to be some opposition. But I also think, I mean, if you take one huge step back and you look at the implications of this planet because of climate change, the annoyance of if you don't want to look at it or you're worried about it potentially impacting fisheries, you know, climate change is going to be a whole lot worse in terms of the implications for the planet and for public health. So let's like point one. I also think there's growing evidence that, you know, fisheries and uh, offshore wind can coexist. I mean, today, offshore oil rigs actually, in some instances, creating better, healthier marine ecosystems. So there are interesting lessons to be learned from the rest of the world that has had previously made these investments. But whenever you're trying something new, when, as I said, whenever you're trying to build a large infrastructure project, is everybody going to be a thousand percent happy all the time? Probably not. But I think what we've as an industry have learned is there's a really important process to figure out how to site and build um, offshore wind facilities, how to work with local stakeholder groups. Um, some projects have even made modifications to where they place the turbines. So I think everybody's trying to figure this out in real time. And yeah, I, I'm confident that the economic and climate benefits are going to be able to sway even some of the skeptics. Is there a sense of just how big of an opportunity this is? Like just how key is this to U.S. decarbonization? If you look at the West Coast, sorry. Best Coast. East Coast. East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to the West Coast in just a second. <laughs> yes, sorry. If you look at the East Coast, we have one of the best offshore wind resources in the world. Why would we not take advantage of that? And I, I think we see offshore wind as reliable. We see offshore wind as affordable. And if you look at sort of this, the decisions that states are making and the new incentives they're putting in place, as well as what the federal government is doing, that 30 by 30 figure, so 30 gigawatts by 2030, if we achieve that, we've done some analysis that shows 83,000 jobs and $25 billion in annual economic output. Um, that's no numbers to see there. And, and, and that builds on what we already know today, which is that the um, clean energy workforce is over 415,000 strong. So I think we're, we're just going to continue to grow and create new opportunities for projects off, off the East and the West Coast. Yeah, that's interesting to think about the jobs impact that would stem from this energy resource, especially when you consider this energy resource offshore wind has a technical resource potential of more than 2000 gigawatts of capacity, according to the Department of Energy. So that could be a lot of jobs if that actually were to come to fruition. Of course, it's the technical potential. But for perspective, that's nearly double the nation's current electricity use. So an enormous untapped opportunity that even if we just get some portion of could really drive 
drive the broader clean energy market here in the country. But now you mentioned the West Coast, so I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that the USC Schwarzenegger Institute that supports this podcast recently put out a study that looks specifically at offshore wind in California and the potential there to impact the economy and jobs. The study, entitled California's Offshore Wind Electricity Opportunity, estimates that developing 10 gigawatts of offshore wind would contribute toward a total resource cost savings of approximately $1 billion. Building those wind facilities would create up to 65,000 jobs during the construction phase and up to 4,500 operation and maintenance jobs over the lifetime of the farms. So a lot of numbers there, but suffice to say, this would have a meaningful impact if realized in achieving California's 100% clean energy goals. This fall, Governor Newsom signed into law a bill that would set a plan for offshore wind development in federal waters off the coast of California, sort of the first step in starting to truly realize this opportunity. The unique thing about offshore wind on the West Coast, where the water is deeper, is the technology of choice is actually wind turbines built on floating platforms. So these floating offshore wind turbines are an industry in its infancy. I think there's only one project in Scotland right now that's in commercial operation with floating wind. So Heather, can you explain how you look at the California offshore wind opportunity? Sure. I mean, the exciting thing is both both coasts offer great resources for offshore wind and, and for new projects. Because the seafloor on the West Coast is different than what we have on the East Coast, it lends itself to a, a new and different technology, which is offshore floating turbines, as opposed to the kind we're contemplating on the East Coast, which are fixed to the floor of the, of the seabed. Um, this administration, importantly, also recognizes that we shouldn't just choose one kind of offshore wind versus the other and um, is, is moving off the coast of California with some call areas in Humboldt and Morro Bays, which I think not only is the governor excited about, um, you know, there's a lot of support from the state of California. And it's, it's because, as you said, Julia, it's jobs, it's climate, and its new sources of economic revitalization for poor communities. Well, we'll be watching to see what happens. Brandon, I'll hand it to you for the last word. We got to get to you on the issue of the day. So Heather, you've advised the president in the Oval Office. You've worked at very senior levels in the Congress. If you were in the Oval right now with President Biden and Senators Manchin and Cinema, what would you say to them? I would say, let's get this reconciliation package across the finish line. I mean, the opportunity that we have with the reconciliation package, which includes long-term extensions of tax credits, as well as direct pay, I mean, those two components are crucial to continuing to deploy clean energy and to providing what is so key, which is certainty and predictability. I mean, clean energy, onshore wind and solar, they kind of live and die through tax credits. And being able to get out of this churn of one or two year credits and actually have something permanent in the tax code up to 10 years is going to be a game change for this industry not only wind, but solar storage um, and new transmission projects as well. So our listeners will hear this on Thursday. Will, will there be a deal done by the end of this week? I'm very optimistic uh, that a deal, at least the, the framework of the deal will be pulled together. And I actually, I think a lot of that has to do with recognition that there's a lot of economic opportunity in the clean power sector 
we have some of the fastest growing jobs in uh, across our our industry. Wind turbine technicians are number one. Solar installations installers are, are the third fastest growing jobs. So I think there's a lot of momentum behind that. I also think there's a great desire by this administration to get as much done uh, as possible before they're in Glasgow for the next round of international climate talks. Are you going to the COP? I will not be going to the COP because I'm going to be here focused on making sure that reconciliation and the bipartisan infrastructure deals get across the finish line. Much to do, much to do. But Heather, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us and have this reunion with Brandon of sorts. Um, <laughs> we need a longer one. Come out to the West Coast. Yes. See, see it up we close. We would love to have you back on to dig into so many other elements of the clean energy transition. Um, but thanks for drilling down on offshore wind for now. Thanks so much, Heather. Thank you. And thanks also to everyone for listening. We appreciate it. And we hope that you hit subscribe so you can catch all of the Political Climate episodes coming up. You can also find us on Canary Media. So be sure to sign up for their newsletter and catch all the latest Political Climate episodes as they drop, plus all the great content Canary Media produces. On that front, thanks to Maria Virginia Alano. She is our producer of this show with Canary Media. Thanks also to Kyle McDonald for his editing magic. That's it for now. Come back in two weeks for our next episode where I'll be reporting back from COP26. For now, so long.